Hello and thank you for joining me. I am Amara Bangura and we are back again with another edition of the CPS Podcast. Here we bring you stories from survivors of armed conflicts as well as experts' analysis. And together, we discuss the impact of armed conflicts on children and why we should prioritize prevention over reaction. Today, we'll hear the story of Nasu Kande. She was just 14 when she was abducted by rebel fighters in Sierra Leone and given a gun to fight. They give me gun. I was given a gun. I didn't know how to shoot. So they taught me how to load the gun and pull the trigger. I did, and I even shot at a boy who was standing next to the rebel commando. I broke his leg. They were impressed. So the commander said, we want you to be part of this group. Now that war ended in 2001. But Nasu, a single mother of two, who is now vice president of the sex workers in her district, says she's still haunted by the painful experience of being a former child fighter whose rights were grossly abused by the rebels who abducted her. We'll also hear from a group of young people who wants governments, organizations, and world leaders to pay more attention to the plight of children living in conflict zones. We can get the community to act as the heart of the society, and if we can get organizations to do that, and the government to then act as you know the brains of the society, if we can put those two things together, there's going to be such harmony and such ease in tackling conflict, as long as everybody plays their role. And if you ever wonder what to do to make women and children feel safe, Masai Ujiri of the Giants of Africa, who is also a member of the Delia Institute's International Advisory Council, has some ideas for you respect for women you need to respect your mom your sister your girlfriend your wife everybody you know uh, women you work with you have to have that respect all these plus the delia institute's new research and why it's critical to ending the use of children in conflicts coming up later this is the CPS podcast brought to you by the Delea Institute for Children, Peace and Security, a global partnership that is working to end the use of children in armed conflict. I am Amara Bangura. Children living in conflicts across the world are affected in many different ways. They are killed, maimed, recruited and used as soldiers. Some are abducted and sexually exploited. Their schools and hospitals are attacked. And in most cases, access to humanitarian services also denied. Nasu Kande lives through this and knows all too well about this horrific experience. Well, Abide, at the age of 14 years, she was 14 when she was captured from her hometown in Moyamba. They were cooking when they had gunshots. And their mother shouted and said, Hey, kids, we have to leave. The rebels are here. Let me say, I want to see rebel. By the time she knew it, her mom and dad and everyone had left, except her elder sister who was still around. So by then, I so then she attempted to run, and she was eventually captured by a rebel commander who was standing right outside waiting. So me, then can we go a bush? She was taken to a nearby bush and was forced to carry looted properties, including food Office, they pull the things they win out the bill, the ball got them the. And then they later took her to a town called My 91. And there they had a serious confrontation with government forces. And she was given a gun to fight. She didn't know how to shoot. 
Spody taught her how to load the gun and pull the trigger. She shot at one of the guys who was standing right next to the rebel commander. And they were impressed and they said, hey, you have to be part of us. So they gave her a bigger gun with a chain of bullets which she wrapped around her neck. And then they moved on to their base. When it came, they just see they can knock knock me, 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 me body. Then three, four men. But at their camp, every night, two, three, and sometimes four men would enter into her tent to take advantage of her. She would scream, but they wouldn't stop. The alternative is death. I go through the jungle. So she went through that experience. And she was introduced to drugs like cocaine. She was told to inhale it. So she became one of them. She's hoping that God will forgive her because she was a powerful fighter. She was a killer because she was told to kill. But later on, UN forces kicked them out of their camp. But it wasn't an easy battle. But then they moved on to another town called Waterloo. And there she managed to escape. And she was eventually rescued by a local hunter who took her back to my 91 town. He gave her food and water and the hunter asked his wife to take care of her. So she stayed with them and was selling cold water for them. Watch for me. Came on at 91, go give me food, give me water, was, woman, take care of me. But by then, woman began freezer, the cold water, it give me, I go sell. Na 91, then at the NP, and we say NP then also. But I don't used to that wildlife day. She was already used to the wildlife. She would normally fight and wound people. Because she still had a lot of drugs in her system. For the day, her family would receive up to five complaints about her behavior. But even after she escaped, she was beaten and shamed by her parents. And she says this abuse sent her back to the streets. If I only get her to take care of me and me two picking there, I get two picking there right now. We are focused on. But her tears and suffering are Before on behalf of her children, streets. not herself. Your mama don't die. Her mother died in the year 2000. 2000. Are they suffer? She's suffering. Are they really suffer? She's really are suffering. They strain? She's struggling. When they say, can they go down the streets? I remember if I count me life, if people can see me again. I suffer. Every night before she goes to the street, she thinks about her children and wondered whether she'd be able to return home to see them again. Well, even while they dress for going on the streets, they watch me picking there, they cry. Because they remember if I count me life. Sometimes men will take her to their homes and she would have no idea of how many other men are there waiting to take advantage of her. All she's doing is just chasing the money to support herself and her kids. So you see, it's really pathetic. It's a pathetic life. I feel totally nasty from up, take candle. When she thinks about it, she feels totally nasty. I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor of violence. I'm proud to share my story with Romeo Julia's Child Soldiers Initiative. And to all those around the world, even where I am, seeking to protect children living in conflicts. My name is Nasu Kande. This is my story. God bless you. Now, many thanks, Nasu, for sharing your story with us. I know it's extremely difficult to go through such an experience. And I also know that it takes a lot of courage to share stories like this. So we appreciate your time and we wish you all the best in life.
Now, to discuss this story and what should be our responsibility as a people to end this horrific experience on children, I have invited members of the Delaire Institute's Youth Advisory Committee. These three young people from different parts of the world are also working with other young people to prevent the recruitment and use of children in conflict. Joining me from Somalia is Abdul Karim, a youth advisor and programs manager at the Elma Peace and Human Rights Center. His work mostly focuses on protecting children from armed conflict. I also have Myra, who is a youth leader in Kenya and ambassador at Giant of Africa, an organization founded by Masai Ujiri. The organization is using basketball as a tool to empower young people into leadership and to dream big for their life. And I also have Aubrey Cedar, who is joining us from Northern Ireland. Aubrey is a theater for peace building researcher, and she studied how to use theater as a therapeutic tool in post-conflict zones. Now, thank you all for joining this conversation. So we've just listened to um, Nasu Kande telling her story. Um, Abdul Karimi, you, you work with people like Nasu Kande in Somalia. When you hear stories like this one, what comes to mind? I think what comes to my mind is uh, the challenge that these people face and the lack of resources that they, they, they have. It resonates with what I have seen, with the experiences that I have seen here in Somalia. And uh, you find uh, children as young as uh, 14, 13, uh, being recruited into armed forces, being given, you know, these challenges where they undergo, you know, various uh, trainings and, uh, and uh, you know, being forced to commit atrocities. And, uh, and then uh, they are dissociated with these uh, forces. Either uh, they escape or they, either they, they are captured. Whichever means they, they come into the society, they find a challenge that they cannot be able to cope within the society and it becomes hard for them to integrate. Okay. And you are emphasizing on the lack of resources. Myra, um, you've just had the story of Nasu Kande. How does this make you feel? Imagine when she was 14, she went through this um, experience. How does this make you feel? It just brings out the heartbreak that's within me um, and a lot of pain. And I feel like this is a great injustice because childhood is something so beautiful and something so necessary for one's development, not only for themselves, but for their society. And when I hear such stories, I feel like as a society, as a community, we have failed. And it's not fair for any youth to go through such trauma and anybody any person even at adulthood this is not fair so for a 14 year old it really makes me feel like as a community we have failed and it's something that we really need to focus on and I feel like it's robbing them of their innocence which is a great thing for their future and we need to not just put resources together but put our minds and put our hearts together because we can't take children out of such a crucial phase especially when the youth are the future Thank you, Myra. Um, Aubrey, how do you feel about stories like this one that we've just had? So building on what my colleagues have said, um, to what Abdi Karim has said, I think this story really shows you how um, the mark of violence um, is lifelong. Of course, rehabilitation is possible, but I think that governments um, and groups around the world only plan for a short-term, you know, timeline of recovery for people who have grown and, you know, created their identities and their personalities within uh, violence. 
And I think that this is um, her story and the, and the amount of suffering that she's gone through um, serves to prove that we should be planning as a society for uh, the long-term care of these people because to recover from such a long lifetime term of violence takes a long time. And it's something that I see um, in even in um, you know more stable regions you know, um, when you're dealing with the suffering of years of having to recover from, um, you know, the rapes that she's gone through, from uh, the violence that she has gone through um, and has perpetrated herself, um, you know, under threat of death, uh, when you're going through all of that, it's hard to focus on um, living any kind of a normal life. Um, you know, as, as Myra said, you know, we need to put our resources and put our hearts and minds towards making sure that people like um, Nasukande can have um, a lifetime of help in their recovery. Mm. Abdi Karim, uh, you said we need to mobilize resources to deal with these issues. What exactly do you mean? Like, what resources do we need? It could be, you know, giving the, the, uh, somebody like Nazoke the skills for her to be able to, you know, live an independent life. I mean, uh, the, the issue of uh, armed conflict, specifically for girl child, it has is yet to be, you know, uh, understood quite clearly. Because here in Somalia, the girl child is not put into the front line as Nasuke has, you know, with the guns and barrels and, you know, fighting the front lines. Because we also see in this story, uh, Nasuke has gone multiple atrocities. Her being in the front line also uh, surviving uh, rape all the time. You know, and this puts a lot of traumas in her young mind. And so you find, uh, you know, even as she comes into adult life, she lives with traumas and uh, and this could impact her mental health. So these resources could be, uh, you know, providing mental health care, long-time solution, as my colleagues have mentioned, to be able to help them, you know, uh, transition into civilian life and also adapt to the society, while at the same time addressing uh, their mental health. Sometimes you find the stigma. I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, Nazuke ha- Facing stigmatization and and, and and stereotypes in the community, building advocacy systems within the community for them to be able to feel safe and secure in their own environment could be some resources that could be could help them transition into civilian life. Thank you. Thanks, Abdi Karim. Um, Myra, what do you think with regards to what Abdi Karim just said? Um, I agree with everything he said so far, especially talking about the stigma. Um, it's something that really needs to be tackled, and that's where I'd introduce the need for awareness. Um, I see such conflicts and such um, attacks on youth as the pandemic, basically. There's a pandemic that's going around and this is causing the deterioration of youth and the wellness of youth. And for example, conflict is one of them. And that's how we should tackle the issue of conflict like that youth are getting involved in is like the pandemic. We need to put all our resources together. It's threatened our future as mankind, but people don't realize that Issues affecting youth and child protection is affecting and deteriorating mankind on all fronts because we cannot raise a future based on youth where we have not taken care of them. We have not taught them what to do. So just like Abdi Karima said, it's resources, yes, but we need a government, we need organizations, and we need leaders to treat this as serious as it is. We need to get more youth groups. We need to get more awareness. We need to get more funds to actually prevent such things happening. But also rehabilitation is a key thing that I think has been forgotten. And like Abdi said, it's a lot about the stigma. And if we can get groups that focus on the stigma that's around it and break that barrier, we can start discussions that haven't been had. Um, seems there is a lot of emphasis on um, bringing resources together, but most importantly, 
that needs to be the involvement of young people or youth groups and proper research to understand these issues, right? Aubrey, is that your view as well? Yeah, so I think um, when we talk about the kind of, of resources that are put forth, I know you kind of, um, Amara, you first said research, and that's what I was thinking. You know, I think we're very fortunate to live in a time where we understand the adolescent and like child brain uh, neurologically and scientifically a lot better than we used to. And so we can actually, you know, understand why it is that when a child is raised in violence, they grow up to continue to perpetuate that violence. And so when we examine the stigma going on in in communities, um, you know, like in Northern Ireland, when we're examining, you know, the stigma against kids in paramilitary gangs. Um, you know, some of it comes from a fear of the behavior of the children. You know, Nasu Kande was talking about how she did. She would get all these complaints against her in the neighborhood, you know, and she would be violent. And we think to ourselves, you know, in a community that wants to protect itself, we can kind of understand why, you know, violence would be a scary thing. But when because we live in a time where we understand so much more about the child's brain and the adolescent's brain, I think part of the way that we destigmatize these groups of people and allow them to re-enter the community is by teaching people who aren't traumatized, teaching people who aren't going through recovery from violence, teaching, you know, women and men who um, are, you know, are in community with these girls that have been violently gang raped, um, teaching them about, okay, what has happened to this child and what kind of actual physical injury has gone on in this child's brain that make them, you know, unruly, that make them, you know, act out, that make them violent um, and, and sort of provide resources as to how to keep that child in that community. Because we know that, you know, I keep on harping on recovery, but one of the, what I see is that uh, a society can't change, can't reintegrate people into, you know, its midst, can't take the stories of these people seriously and and lead from these people's stories and from the wisdom of, you know, what they have to offer to the solution if they can't reintegrate these people into the community. Uh, because one of the things that I see in my, in my research and in my work is that community and having community around you um, is one of the most important ways uh, to recover and to um, allow people to move into um, a more stable situation and life when you don't have support. Um, it's really difficult to recover from the many illnesses that Nasu Kande is experiencing and many people like her are experiencing. Okay, let's get back to Abdul Karim on this issue. Abdul Karim, when you meet with people uh, like Nasu Kande, let's say in this case, Somalia, when you meet with people who have a similar experience as Nasu Kande, what do you tell them? Usually, um, yeah, we have a program. Uh, the program usually, you know, helps them, you know, recover. But at the same time, it's important for them not to be victimized and shown that this is what, what is, is their fault. So we tend to give them a picture of they are part of the society and they are a victim of a wider problem rather than being uh, them being a problem uh, to the society. So we help them link them with the community, the community leaders, religious leaders, who show them, you know, a different uh, direction than the one that uh, that they, ha they have taken. But to understand uh, what we tell them, we have to first of all understand, uh, you know, the path that uh, that led them to that point. So you find uh, a, a child whose father is in the armed group. And uh, you, you can't expect that child to have a, a different uh, path than to follow his footsteps of his, uh, his parent. So 
at, at long last, when that child, you know, is being threatened by his own father, you know, to forcing him to come back to where he was, then uh, you have to find a frame, give him a different frame of reference for him to be able to uh, to follow that path. So I think most one of the important thing is to have a dialogue with the with the with the survivors. Thanks, um, Myra. Let's imagine you meet with Nasu Kande or someone with a similar experience. What would you say to them? Um, dialogue is so important, and talking to them and just hearing where they're coming from is always the first step. And what we usually do in our Giants of Africa programs is we work on affirmations. We work on letting them express themselves, but in a positive way. We make sure that they say their name and we say where they come from in a very positive way. And that's always a start. And in the grand scheme of things, I'd like to say this as an uprooting. So if I was to speak to someone like Nasu Kande, we'd talk about uprooting, where we uproot the issue. And that's because as she was young and as she was developing, there was a seed that was planted in her that has caused her to see life as very negative, very conflict-based. And that's how she was, you know, as she was saying, she grew up, she was still stealing, she was still wounding people because that's all she knew. So I would start by uprooting the, the cause and then following that, I would just plant a small seed. And seed planting usually is by letting them know that there is hope, letting them know that um, this is not what their life is. Yes, that was a part of your life, but there is so much more ahead of you. And if you plant a seed, a plant a foundation that makes them see life as positive, lets them you know, feel encouraged and motivated, they will get life and they will get the positive things from life. So someone like Nasukande, I would honestly have a big conversation with them. So like Abdi said, he would um, link them with religious leaders who would then also help them. And that's another way to water that seed. And we also create an environment that would allow them to water that seed for themselves. Interesting. Plants a solution or proves the problem. Um, Aubrey, what do you think? What would you do if you meet with someone like Nasu Kande? What would you say to them? If I met Nasu Kande, I think in addition to what my colleagues have said, um, in planting a seed, I would tell them, you know, nobody is the worst thing that they've ever done, right? So she's more than the worst thing that she's ever done. She's she's more than the guilt. She's more um, than the past. And then I would also tell her that, you know, because of what she's gone through, but also just because she's human, she deserves to have the kind of community and the kind of support um, that she needs and that she craves um, and that she didn't get you know, from her community when she was, when she was rescued. Right. Um, thanks, guys. And I know we are running out of time here, but I'm just going to um, drop this quickly. Um, we've talked about people like Nasu Kande. But let's see if we meet with world leaders interested in building peace or organizations trying to prevent the use of child soldiers. What would you say to governments? What would you say to people? What would you say to organizations interested in peace building? This time, let me start with Myra. Okay, sure. Um, what would I say to governments? I'd say to governments, do what you are there for. Governments usually like to play the role of, oh, we'll help out by, you know, starting this organization and this foundation. But governments, essentially, you have the funds. 
you have the ability to reach a greater group of people in terms of awareness. So use what you're good at. Leave the little um, organizations and the little projects to organizations that have already been established. However, there also needs to be, um, like you said, talking to people. Now, those small organizations, they are essentially the heart of the society. That's where we need you guys to keep giving. Even though you feel like the progress is small, we need you to keep just helping where you can, mobilizing people to come together, especially community engagement. My colleague Aubrey talked about community being such a strong thing to help integrate these people back. And if these organizations can start to look at, okay, it's not just the people who work with us, but the people who live in this area, the people who live in areas of conflict, we need to get them on board with what we're doing. They are essentially your staff and the government to then act as, you know, the brains of the society. If we can put those two things together, there's going to be such harmony and such ease in tackling conflict as long as everybody plays their role. Okay. Um, and Aubrey, uh, what would you say to either parents or communities? Um, and what I would say to the families and to the teachers in the communities is that, you know, even though it may be really difficult to interact with these kids, with these teens, um, all of the work that you put in to have compassion and patience, all of the work that you put to listen and to comfort um, is going to be like the key to this person living a fruitful life. So if there are, you know, five, 10 years of you having to just work really hard and stay patient and stay the course, know that you are giving that person a lifetime. A lifetime. Thank you so much, Abri. Um, Abdul Karim, summarize this for us. What would you like to see happen? What changes would you like to see happen? What I would like to see, you know, moving forward and uh, will be, you know, the international community and governments, specifically communities, to invest in early warning system. Um, we can see the signs of, uh, you know, the disease and uh, before it's better to tackle before it spreads all over and, you know, takes, uh, takes root. So investing in early warning systems, you know, where uh, uh, the issue of recruitment is, children are being misused, there is a lot of uh, dropouts. Those uh, early signs could help us invest better so that at least we can be able to help uh, these children. I would also uh, uh, advise governments to invest specifically also in education because if children are in school and uh, they are engaged properly, then it will be uh, uh, hard for recruiter cells to find, you know, indoctrinations of children. Uh, 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 and I will also uh, lastly uh, conclude by saying, you know, poverty is also one major thing that pushes uh, many of these families and uh, uh, to abandon their children and separate uh, abandoned children usually, uh, you know, are vulnerable to these uh, groups. So finding solutions to, you know, poverty and, uh, you know, the challenge of marginalization can go a long way in helping children. Thank you. All right. Um, thank you so very much for this and really appreciate talking to you all. In case you are just joining us, this is the CPS podcast brought to you by the Delea Institute for Children, Peace and Security, a global leader in preventing the use of children in armed conflict. I am Amara Bangura. If women win, we all win. This is what Masai Ujiri, the president of the Toronto Raptors and founder of the Giant of Africa, also a member of the Delea Institute's International Advisory Council, told the Delea Institute's executive director, Dr. Shelley Whitman, when they spoke during the Delea Institute's Knowledge for Prevention Symposium. Masai is trying to influence the attitudes and behavior of young people by preaching peace, empowerment, love, and equality through the Giant of Africa programs to avoid stories like that of Nasu Kande. And we've heard you say that when women win, we all win. 
And we know you're a huge supporter of providing women um, with equal work and life opportunities. If you could just tell us a little bit about when you made the decision to start to add um, girls and, and female campers to the Giants of Africa program. Um, talk to us about what you learned from that experience that might have been different prior to that. Well, we I started, I told you, I started selfishly trying to find basketball players for the NBA because this is my <laughs> my job, you know, I, have, I had to earn a paycheck one way or the other. And, and, and when we started these basketball camps, um, we would have all these young boys and we would try to teach them uh, the basic fundamentals uh, and then the life skills. And the life skills became uh, where honesty and uh, your, your character, who you are as a person, um, uh, respect for your elders, respect for women. And we kept preaching and talking and I'd find myself always telling them, you know, you need to respect your mom, your sister, your girlfriend, your wife, everybody, you know, uh, women you work with, you have to have that respect regardless of whether it's religion, whatever it is, I don't care what it is, you know, we, we are equal and you have to treat them uh, equally and even better. And then it, it started to occur to me, Shelley, that, Okay, you're telling these kids and you're hoping that they are going to go do it, you know, and, and then uh, some of the strong women I've, uh, I work with, you know, su started suggesting and we started talking about having a women's camp, you know, and I started thinking about having a women's camp too. And But when we were doing the women's camp, there's always that suggestion of, oh, if we do the boys here, maybe we can have a little gym here and we'll just bring 20 girls or bring. And I said, from day one that I'm doing this camp, we're going to have the same amount of boys as the same amount of girls. They're going to get the same Nike shoes that the boys get. If we don't have equal gear for everybody, then I wouldn't do the camp uh, at that place. I'd rather not do it. And then we started doing something incredible where they started playing together and doing some of the drills yeah, together. You finally get to see and how they feel bigger, stronger. They feel that togetherness, you know, they feel that love. They feel that confidence. And I'm so proud that they can use the sport to demonstrate, you know, some of these things that uh, they can do so well. And it brings out their passion, you know. So this really um, became... Uh, something to learn from uh, for me and then traveling all over the continent, whether it was to Somalia, to Samburu, all these places that we've gone to, you know, like trying to help more women through Giants of Africa, through sport, through basketball, using it as a tool. The joy it brings you, you know, I, I love listening to Myra, listening to all these young girls, uh, young women speak, grow, you know, and you, you find that you want to do more for the continent and for all over the world because there are so many, uh, so, so much opportunity and there's so many young people that want opportunity. Too few opportunities indeed. And thanks, Masai, and we wish you good luck. The Delia Institute recognizes that protecting children from the effect of armed conflict is both a moral imperative and an essential element to break the cycle of violence. So the Institute is taking bold steps to confront the issue and deal with it.
But that requires thorough research that would help us all understand the gaps and design appropriate responses to tackle the issue head on. And that's what Dustin Johnson is doing. Uh, yes, so my current project, um, we're looking at child protection mandate in UN peacekeeping, and especially with respect to preventing the crewman use of child soldiers, um, and then looking at the ways in which gender matters in child protection, uh, both in terms of gender of peacekeepers and the gender of children and other people that they're interacting with. And so sort of central to that is understanding sort of the gendered impacts both of peacekeeping and of child recruitment and use um, and how we need to pay attention to those to improve the conduct of peacekeeping. Um, more systematic and in-depth evidence to improve child protection and really get an understanding of the gender dynamics of child protection so we can understand how both women and men um, are important in child protection, but also what other factors besides gender might be more important that we might be missing from too exclusive a focus on gender. Hearing stories like this, how does it make you feel? I think it's the most challenging part of the work that we do. Um, so, I mean, it's never easy to hear the stories of people that have survived that kind of violence, especially sexual violence and the impact it has on them afterwards. Um, so I think it's always very difficult to be always reading about and hearing about um, these testimonies and the experiences that uh, children go to or go through. Um, makes you very sad and very angry that the world is this way, um, but also pushes you to want to do something about it. Um, and I think that's something that's always important to keep at the front of my mind as a researcher working on this subject is... Um, that reason for why it's important to do this research. and How is your research helping shape the Delia Institute's um, approach to uh, the issues of child soldiers and the issue of women, peace and security? I think there's a number of ways and partially it's from the original primary research that we're carrying out and then it's also from all the literature review and secondary material we look at to support that research. And with regard to that question, I think maybe the two key areas that both we're looking at in our own research and we're also seeing develop um, in the literature is paying more attention to children's agency in situations of armed conflict. There's a lot of times mm -hmm. um, we sort of usually look at children who are being recruited and used as soldiers um, as sort of entirely victims of armed conflict who are being forced or taken advantage of by adults. And we often put quote marks around voluntary recruitment um, to sort of say, well, in this context, because children are immature and there's so many pressures from violence and poverty and so on that it's not truly voluntary. Um, and there's a lot of researchers um, who take sort of a different view of agency and it's not just something that you have or don't have, but it's very kind of contextual and contested. Um, I want to better understand how children navigate um, situations of armed conflict and understand sort of the bounds around their agency and how that can uh, be better paid attention to when we're working to to protect children and prevent violence against them. That was Dustin Johnson, the Delaire Institute's research advisor, speaking to us from Geneva. And that's it for today's edition of the CPS podcast. We've learned a lot about the experiences of young people in conflict through Nasu Kande. And we've also learned that young people who are mostly on the receiving end want governments, organizations, and world leaders to put structures in place that would prioritize the prevention of the recruitment and use of child soldiers, and the importance of research to design appropriate approaches 
to end the recruitment and use of child soldiers. Thank you for being part of this conversation. We will be back again next month with another edition of the CPS podcast, so don't forget to join us. If you'd like to listen to this podcast again, please download it. And yes, please feel free to share it. This has been Adelaide Institute's production. Thanks to all those who contributed. Until we meet again, I am Amara Bangura. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day.